Among many other topics, I have two interviews for you today, one regarding an event coming up here in the upstate of South Carolina, but we will start with an interview regarding something I think we need to discuss, and that's Christians and mental health on today's Corey Act Show. edition of the Corey Truax Show. We've got a lot to do on it. Before we dive in, as is usual, first, my name's Corey Truax. We are dedicated to smarter, better, deeper talk about everything here on the show. And I'm also the pastor for teaching at Beachwood Church. Beachwood Church is meeting over uh, at our at our property now, out of Greenville High School on 1030 Sunday mornings. You are cordially invited uh, to Beachwood Church any given Sunday morning at 1030. Here's what I want to start with today. I grew up with a world where uh, there was a, a stigma attached to mental health care. And as, as I've gotten older and have been uh, doing this ministry thing, I found that there's a really important role for that uh, for that topic and I think some misconceptions around it. So I have found somebody who has been so kind, a professional in the field, to come and talk uh, with us about that because I want to start to dispel some of those things r- regarding uh, mental health care. So joining us is a uh, professional uh, in in the world of ther- uh, in the world of therapy, a licensed counselor, also a Christian counselor. Uh, her name is Patricia Nelson. Welcome to the show, Mrs. Nelson. Thank you very much, Corey. How are you today? I am quite well, and I am grateful you given giving us the time this morning on a topic I'm sort of new to, but I think one I've had wrong for a long time. So here's where I'd want to begin from a professional's perspective. Um, coming from a, a Christian background, what are those misconceptions you've seen people of faith have about talk therapy? Well, I think a lot of um, Christian people feel that mental illness or or mental health problems are caused by demons or um, or a a choice to to be sinful um, and that only prayer and Bible study can overcome and dispel mental illness. Um, that mental Ill- illness is an expression of sin or brokenness or corruption, um, and only God can heal this. Um, you know, the, the Bible warns that um, God works in his time, so, so many have come to stop medications and wait um, for God to heal them as they get closer to God. Uh, in their walk to to be righteous. I know for me growing up, I I absolutely just heard that basically said that uh, if you're on if you're on an antidepressant or if you're on an anti-anxiety medicine or something or if you're having to use anything essentially but prayer, there's something wrong spiritually and uh, I mean I, I I would imagine that you would find some disagreement in that, right? That there is there's got to be some some place for this other part of healthcare that is mental health. Well, exactly. Um, you know, some see um, mental illness as caused by supernatural forces and evil spirits, um, and believe that you know God is the only one that can change anything since He lives in us, and so He's the only one that can heal us. Um, but of course, um, over the years, over the centuries, as we've kind of dealt into um, helping people um, deal with mental illness, we've come to see that um, it, it's a little, God 
wants us also to deal with some of our past experiences that cause us to think negatively and behave negatively. And sometimes they're buried deeply within within our psyche as we grow up, um, and we aren't aware of what those experiences have caused in our life that cause our current negative behavior, negative decision-making. We are talking this morning, or I guess if you're not listening live, it's uh, on the podcast, to, uh, to Patricia Nelson, a licensed counselor. And the next, I guess, topic for this is I'm trying to get through a conversation for a listenership that I probably grew up like me and has some stigma attached to those who would use use talk therapy or, or talk to a therapist or something like that. I would I would want your your thoughts on who therapy is relevant for because I think there's a um I think there's a, a stereotype in my head that it's it's for a certain people uh, that have some very deep issues maybe a really tough childhood. So for whom do you think talk therapy is a, a relevant practice? Talk therapy benefits anyone and everyone. Um, even, I think there's about 17% of the human population that actually isn't dealing with some sort of worry, anxiety, um, you know, kind of depressive, anxious kinds of feelings that are caused by things that they think about. Um and sometimes faulty thinking can make those uh, worse, you know. So <clears throat> I think anyone and everyone can benefit from talk therapy, but especially those who are having trouble working, getting along with people, um, may consider hurting themselves in some way. Um, talk therapy certainly can help them look at the world in a different way. In, have different perceptions in your practice thus far in the decades of experience is there a is there an issue more common than not like what are the issues people are working through like if i have a listener out there that's thought about doing therapy like what is uh, what's the most common thing you've had to deal with most common is depression and depression can come from relationship problems conflict internal and external um, anxiety is a big problem these days, um, just caused by everyday living. Uh, how do I parent my children? What if I don't have enough money? Um, what if I, you know, can't? What if my car breaks down? Some some people use uh, catastrophized thinking. Um, they they think all the worst things that could happen and kind of create a scary thought pattern for themselves. Um, but I think basically most common is anxiety and um, depression uh, caused by relationship problems. I think the, even just hearing what you just said, that there's people that catastrophize uh, and think of the worst case scenarios. I think even that can just help somebody to know they're not the only one. They're not the only one that is constantly coming up with a disaster scenario <laughs> and needing to talk through it. Um, here's one I've noticed, and I've talked about it on my show a lot. I would love to get your thoughts. I am noticing, especially in my age group, I'm 32, in millennials and those around my age, there's an epidemic of loneliness, a, a lot of isolation. And I don't know if I just want to blame it on social media, 
have have you seen that as well? And if so, how do how do we address the mass loneliness and isolation that we're experiencing? Yeah. Well, loneliness is a feeling. It's not a fact. It's a feeling. And it's usually caused by memories of the past, of lost people, lost experiences, lost jobs that we loved. Um, it, you know, we're kind of different as humans from animals in that way. Animals don't really um, have a lot of loneliness. They will recognize somebody that they used to know and be happy, but they don't really spend a lot of time, you know, kind of sitting in a corner and feeling sad and lonely. Um, That's kind of a human condition. And, you know, a lot of times it's, it's brought on, especially nowadays, because we are such more mobile populations now. We don't stick around home. We graduate, we get a job, and we move away. So our extended family is not there to you just go over and have coffee with, um, talk about the past, you know, validate our childhood, validate all of our wonderful experiences we had growing up. Um, we don't we don't have that connection as much as we used to. Um, you know, our favorite meal on our birthday. Um, you know, those kinds of things we've lost in a in large part. Yeah. For a large part of our, our millennials, anyway. Yeah, I've noticed it environmentally, where I feel like my parents grew up, in a, uh, they, they grew up in the, the same town, they stayed in that town primarily. People would hang out on the front porch. Uh, you, knew, you knew your neighbors. Uh, but I just think about the American context, where we actually built something called the, uh, you know, the, the built-in garage, where literally you can just drive into your home. You never have to mm-hmm. see anybody. We started building big back porches, so you didn't have mm-hmm. to hang out, uh, hang out and actually interact with anybody. And then we get behind our screens, and there is just this, uh, it creates, I think, some isolation. For those that do feel isolated, um, it, if you had somebody in front of you with that problem, is the encouragement just to proactively go do something, go be a part of something, go, go join in on something to start creating connection? Absolutely. The, the best recommendation is to get up in the morning and realize I just have today to deal with. You know, what am I going to do to make today be the best day? Reach out to somebody. Smile at somebody. Get involved with a group. Um, that has similar interests that you do. Be curious about other people. Ask them how they're doing. You know, ask them, you know, where they got their shoes, if you think they're pretty, just to interact with people. That's what we've lost. We don't hang clothes out anymore. We don't plant gardens anymore where we would see our neighbors. And, and, you know, we we don't say, come on over for coffee. You know, now it's like a formal invitation for dinner or something a gathering yeah, you know there's actually a running joke amongst people my age that a feeling of relief is when plans get canceled that when you, <laughs> when you were going to do something with people and then those plans get canceled that used to be something we were disappointed in yeah and now it's something we feel re- relief at something else you just said there that i needed to hear is i'm the guy who wonders how's it going to be a month from now six months from now a year from now 10 years from now but just to tackle let's worry about today you know, we'll, mm-hmm. we'll have tomorrow, worry about tomorrow, and uh, let's focus mm-hmm. on today. Uh, maybe, yeah. maybe my last uh, topic here is coming from that Christian counselor perspective in particular. 
are there cautions you would give people when either choosing a therapist or thinking about therapy from a secular perspective? How do we include biblical thinking in the idea of therapy? Well, I think that you, you know, you need to know who you're, you know, do some research like you would for any kind of person that you're looking for help, even a roofer. You you do a, a research on them to see, you know, who, who do people recommend? Um, are they church-based? Do they go to a church? Do, um, do people that go to that church, you know, do they have a high regard for that counselor? Um, like anything, you want quality. You want to know they're licensed. You want to know that that they're biblically based. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be in your um, Baptist, you know, Lutheran, Methodist, all of that. But they they need to have a knowledge of the Bible and how the Bible guides us and and the benefits of of the Bible and of God and of Jesus. Yes. That's that's the difference in regular talk therapy as opposed to to biblical therapy. Yeah, I like that balance there, because I, I would say, as my final thought here, we'll, we'll close up, is the, I've started to think of mental health as I as I would every other t- type of doctor I know, you just or at least any other kind of medical professional I know, where it's, you're just getting treatment for a different thing. But at the same time, uh, there, there, there are these core truths of, of who we are, who we are in Christ, and how you, how you find mm-hmm. identity and if we will root ourselves there, you can take mm-hmm. part in this other kind of mental health care and, and be okay. Um, so Absolutely. Before I let you go, any other final thoughts you would give anybody regarding uh, about talk therapy or any kind of encouragement you would give the listenership, and then we will, we will close it? Well, I think just that there's a range of severity, and when talk therapy isn't being especially helpful— and you still feel real depressed or anxious, there's a time to seek a doctor's help. There are medications throughout the Bible. They've used salves and balms and things like that to treat people medically for things that prayer wasn't helping. And that still is true today. You know, we have very advanced health care for psychiatric problems, and medication can help a lot. Um, and so don't be afraid, you know, to go to a regular doctor and say, uh, you know, I'm going to talk therapy, but I'm still feeling really anxious at times. The, the best treatment for any kind of mental health issue is talk therapy and medication. The two combined um, are the most effective for people dealing with um, mental health issues. Very good. Hey, thank you for giving us some time this morning. I very much appreciate it. You're very welcome. And for uh, for podcast listeners, radio listeners, we'll be back with the remainder of the Corey Truax Show in just a bit. Stick with us. Welcome back to the Corey Truax Show. Connect to the show on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or Snapchat. Look for me, Corey Truax. You will find me there. You can also send your opinion into the show. You can do that on the Anchor app. You can actually call in if you want and leave a message there on the Anchor app. We can play it on the show. You can also send email or Facebook messages, as so many of you do. And for real, I'm grateful for it. Helps me to get prepared for the show uh, as as time goes by. Just some other good ideas and feedback. One of the f- pieces of feedback I actually am really interested in having from you is on what we just talked about, because uh, I did grow up in a world, as I mentioned at the beginning of that interview, where 
talk therapy, the idea of going to a shrink, it really was frowned upon in the Christian community. And I'm only recently getting into this topic with any seriousness. Only recently have I gotten into really thinking about what role mental health plays. And so some of you might actually have a lot more insight on this. Like, get this. I know it doesn't come across really well, but get this. Sometimes I can be humble. It's rare, but it's happened before. And I am most often humble when I recognize I don't know a thing. This thing that we're talking about, it's not a, it's not a topic that I am a great, have a great deal of background in. And so uh, as we get into this, this topic, I am curious how that's gone for some of you. Because uh, the bottom line is, there is some therapy out there that needs to be avoided. I mean, of course, I would I prefer it come from a biblical perspective, uh, but even the world, uh, there's, I had a professor at North, Green, at North Greenville University that often said uh, even a blind, a blind squirrel finds acorns. And so, yeah, even the secular world finds some things that are true. The secular world finds some social things that are true and relational things that are true. It is first best to have a biblical background on the human condition, who we are at our nature. It is first best to come from a perspective. Uh, that understands who God is and what the standards are for life and all that. But just having uh, this this idea of mental health being destigmatized has become something I, I want to do because where I put it now as a category is just another piece of health care. The, the emotions in the mind being just another thing that needs a doctor from time to time. And so I want to destigmatize that. So again, your, um, your opinions are welcome. One of the ways in which I have found um, there to be uh, like there's some I know I need to avoid or some of us need to avoid is I somehow got a like a email from Talkspace. So if you don't know, there's now online therapists, as in you can video call them or call them or chat like it's AOL. Um, you, you can use that service instead of going to a person, going to someone in person. And so I got one of their emails, and the headline of the email was how hookup culture can actually be a good thing, which for those of you who don't know, if you're not one of the kids out there. Hookup culture being random sexual encounters with people. And so, like, obviously they sent that email to me, and I was like, yeah, you got the wrong audience. Uh, that, was, that wasn't for me. Uh, you guys are straight up wrong about that. And so there should be some caution exercised around it. Uh, but certainly that stigma is what I wanted to come off there. Next up, earlier this week I had the opportunity to sit down with Dr. Jeff Briggs. He is the, what do we call him up at North Carolina University? I believe he is the dean of the College of Wellness and Sport Professions. Also sat down with Jason Ross. He is the uh, our corporate our, our corporate guy who works with a corporate what do we call that relations? Um, so uh, we they have an event coming up at North Greenville University. I wanted to give it some time to promote because I would highly encourage you to go be involved in it if you can. Uh, I'll have the details here in this interview, but that's what I have for you next. It runs for about five minutes. Here is my interview with Dr. Jeff Briggs and Mr. Jason Ross. Next up on the show, I want to talk about an event coming to the upstate of South Carolina that you would have some great interest in if you were part of the audience of this show, and really even Western North Carolina, you can get there. It's at North Greenville University on February 8th, 2019, from 1 to 5 p.m. It's going to be at my alma mater at North Greenville University up in Tigerville. It is called the Faith at Work Business Symposium. We're going to discuss that now with two organizers of the event. First, we have the North Greenville University Dean of the College of Wellness and Sport Professions. His name is Dr. Jeff Briggs. Good morning, sir. Good morning. And also joining us is the Director of Corporate Develop. Is it Corporate Relations or Corporate Development? Corporate Development. Corporate Development. That's a great title. We have Mr. Jason Ross. Good morning, sir. Good morning, Corey. So for whoever of you wants to take this first question, what is this vision for why North Greenville University hosts this every year, the Faith at Work Business Symposium? 
It's to help Christian business leaders on how they can integrate their biblical values in the marketplace. Are you finding, like I think I probably would, but that's hard for business leaders. It to, really is. To bring that faith into the corporate world. Yes. And so who, um, who will be speaking to help, uh, help go along with that? Well, we're going to have three awesome speakers, one being Tobin Castles. He's from the Midlands, and he's also the president of Southeastern Freight Lines. And then also joining with us, a lot of people may know her, uh, Lauren Green. She is the Fox News Channel's chief religion correspondent. And she's also going to be bringing some of her books that she just has just written. Yeah. And then, of course, uh, our very own from the upstate, Josh Kimbrell, which is now, he's got a new company you probably heard. Yes. CEO of Extus Aircraft. He is also right here on Christian Talks at 60, Monday through Friday at 5 p.m., everybody. If you want to listen to him, give a little plug to Josh there. Dr. Briggs, how did you get involved with the Faith at Work Business Symposium, and what role do you play there? Sure. Jason and I have kind of headed up the the organizing committee for this over the past four years. And uh, one of our chief goals was to integrate our business students uh, into this symposium so that they could meet the local business entrepreneurs. They could hear from these uh, various speakers to come and talk about their companies for Christ. And so my role predominantly has been to work on the academic side to bring our 500 plus business students and sport management students to this event, including our business faculty, and then connecting them with the local business community that attends, as well as the speakers that attend. For either one of you that want to respond to this, here is, here's how I've thought about this event. I have found over my years in watching the news that a lot of time the most talented people in business are the least ethical people. And the most ethical people are sometimes the least talented. Is this an event that tries to bring those two things together, to develop the talent for those that would have those ethics? Obviously, we honor uh, people that have high Christian ethics yes. and business ethics, and then they walk in their faith, and then they, they portray that through their company. These entrepreneurs lead organizations. They're, uh, they're founders of organizations. They lead companies. Obviously, in a secular marketplace, to do well in a marketplace, to make money. But their ultimate goals, if you talk to them and as you listen to them, they are trying to spread the kingdom of God messages, the gospel of Jesus messages, throughout their corporations and as they reach people through their corporations and their organizations. When you think about the target audience for this event, who is this relevant for, Mr. Ross? Uh, Everyone in the upstate, you know, our area businesses. uh, We've met a lot through the Christian Chamber of Commerce and then also, uh, you know, Rotary and different other outlets, but also for our very own students because that's our next generation. Oh, yeah. And as professors here, you know, one of our goals is to teach our next generation how to be transformational leaders for church and society. And they need to see as business leaders or future business leaders how they can do that. Yeah, I, I love that, uh, that new phrase we're using around in North Greenville, where it's uh, cultivating transformational <laughs> leaders for church and society, in that Christian education has tended to concentrate, concentrate it historically on the church. But don't we all know that the boardrooms of America and the, uh, could, could right. use a couple more Christians in them, right? Like, yeah. this is a good ethic yeah. for us to have. Um, so if folks want to come, let's give them the details. I mean, I'll give the date if you guys want to give us, like, how to register, if there needs to be registration, or just walk up. Um, it's February 8, 2019, 1 to 5 p.m. in our beautiful Turner Chapel here up at Tiger, Tigerville in uh, North Greenville University. How do folks get involved and sign up, Mr. Ross? It's really easy. Um, hopefully, uh, people got their pens and uh, paper out there. Yes. But, but basically, you just go to ngu.edu, and it's backslash faith at work. 
So again, that's ngu.edu backslash faith at work. And it's a free sign up. It's a free event. And so basically it will form an RSVP for us. So that way we'll know how many people are coming. We're going to have refreshments. There's going to be time for networking. And what's really good about this is we're allowing our students to be able to network with business leaders. Yes. So that's, that's the whole reason why they're in college is hopefully one day get a job. Yeah. If you're looking for some of that uh, younger, cheap labor, uh, those guys getting started. Absolutely. Not a terrible idea to come out and meet some bright college students uh, along with that. Uh, Before we close it up, anything else you would uh, mention, Dr. Briggs, regarding the Faith at Work Business Symposium? Absolutely. If you're listening to this podcast today or this broadcast, we would invite you to come out. If you're a business owner, if you work in a business, if you're a manager or leader of your organization, you want to learn from business professionals, if you want to meet some of our faculty and maybe connect our programs, maybe you have internship opportunities in your organization, or maybe you have some project work that some of our classes our students could take on. We're always looking to partner with those in the local business community. Yeah, my final pitch to that for, again, February 8th, 2019, 1 o'clock at Turner Chapel up here at North Greenville University. If you're a pastor listening and you have those men and women in your church who are entrepreneurs and they just need to be uh, reinvigorated with some Christian ethics around their businesses, you want to be uh, you want to be uh, reinvigorated knowing that there are Christian young men and women coming up at North Greenville, getting connected to others in the community, some of the young talent. There is no reason not to spend those four hours up here at North Greenville University for the Faith at Work Business Symposium. February 8th, 1 o'clock. We hope to see you there. Again, featured speakers are Tobin Castles, Lauren Green from Fox News, and our very own Josh Kimbrell. Thank you, Mr. Ross, for taking the time. You're welcome. Thank Thank you, Dr. Briggs, for giving us some time this morning. Thank you. One last time, everybody. February 8th, 1 o'clock, Turner Chapel, Tigerville, South Carolina. We hope to see you there. And now back to me in real life, real life time. Uh, So, yeah, that that work. Faith at Work Business Symposium. Highly encourage you to be there if you can. Now, some actual news stories from this week I wanted to get to with limited time, but I think we can have high impact. First, number one, Elizabeth Warren. She's the senator from Massachusetts. She is uh, the—everyone's so excited about presidential candidate. She tweeted a stupid thing. Can you believe it? Here's what she tweeted. She tweeted about Dan Snyder, who was the owner of the Washington Redskins. He's a terrible NFL owner. He does a bad job. Now, I'm okay with that. Because I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan, we are rivals. We the Cowboys are rivals with the Redskins, and so when they're poorly run, that makes that makes me happy. And some at some level, he's a bad CEO. But Elizabeth Warren tweets out that here is this NFL owner who just bought a hundred million dollar yacht. I bet he can afford my super millionaire tax. Which, by the way, isn't an actual is not an actual denomination of money. There's no such thing as. I got a thousand dollars and a hundred thousand and a million and a hundred million and then I got a super hundred million. Like she just made up a thing, like she's a superhero. It's the super hundred millionaire, and so she put she has this tax that she wants to put on the wealthy. And what she says is uh, that I bet he can pay my super millionaire tax to help those Americans who are yachtless with student loan debt. Well, that includes me, by the way. Believe it or not, I'm yachtless. I'm not an owner of a yacht. Also. I have some a little bit of student loan debt left. And so, I have a couple thoughts on the stupidity of what she said there. One, I'm a little annoyed at this point about how we talk about student loans. Like the people who, who took out a student loan, uh, like, like they're victims. Like, I wasn't a victim. I, I mostly knew what I was doing. Some people that do it don't know what they're doing. And I think some colleges, I could name them, by the way do a very bad job of making clear what a student is doing, explaining clearly the consequences of these actions, but that's still the student's responsibility. It's still the adults in that student's life to have the responsibility to explain it, discourage where it needs to be discouraged, encourage where there needs to be encouragement. But there's something about on the left, something on the left now, 
is taking people with student loan debt as a victim. It's a class of victim that we need to help. And that's not the case. Uh, when, when you make a purchase, even at 18 years old, you made that purchase. And that's what a student loan is. You made the purchase. Again, I knew what I was doing. I was making a bet on myself. I was making an investment in myself that I would earn more with the education I would get. I am, that's the bottom line truth for me. I'm going to earn more over my lifetime because of the connections made and the education received with a four-year college degree. That's not the case for everybody. For some people, it's a bad investment. Not everyone needs to go to a four-year college. That's a bad investment for some people. But that's not a victim status. And so Elizabeth Warren sets up as, well, Dan Snyder is taking advantage of these people who have student loans. It's not Dan Snyder's fault. It's not rich people's fault that some people took out student loans they, they shouldn't have. So that's one. Having a student loan doesn't turn you into a victim, and that's what Elizabeth Warren set up there. Number two, his money, Dan Snyder having money, isn't hurting anyone. So in a real denotative sense, the fact that he has a lot of money does not necessitate that other people have a little. This is a thing the left does poorly about understanding economics. We have created a lot of wealth in America, not because there was a set amount of money 200 years ago, and it was just a lot of it, and we spread it around. It's because we've created more wealth through trade and innovation. The level of wealth now is higher, not because we distributed it properly, but because we were a free place that continued to grow the wealth. The old... Uh, what's the old illustration is we don't want a larger piece of the pie. We want the pie to get bigger so that if this pie gets big, all of the slices of the pie benefit from that. His money is his money. Excuse me. Dan Snyder having money isn't hurting anyone else. And literally the opposite is true. Consider that yacht. Someone's actually done this before. I think it was Thomas Sewell in a book. How many people are helped by the purchase of a yacht? A hundred million dollar purchase. Can you imagine how many people benefited from that that are just like you and I? Or just like you and me? Or, and that is you and I. Yeah, that is the predicate nominative or like the subjective tense in there. So the yeah, just like you and I. Where you got you to gotta get the materials. I don't, know what we make, I don't know what we make yachts out of, but it's some kind of material. Somebody had to mine that stuff. Somebody had to get in some kind of factory and, uh, and manipulate those metals and materials and plastics. Somebody had to... Uh, build build those engines and whatever else goes into a yacht. Someone had to manufacture the the carpeting and the 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 wood paneling and all that. You know who does that? Just you and I, normal people, and we all benefit from that. A one hundred million dollar purchase then trickled down into all different parts of the economy that helped a lot of normal folks. That was a big purchase for him that benefited a ton of people. If he wasn't making that purchase wherever he made it, the people in that local economy, the people more broadly that make those materials, they don't benefit from that purchase. Wherever he's going to put that yacht in terms of a port, and he's going to pay those port fees, whoever he's going to pay to fill it up with gas, whoever he's going to pay to service it, oh, it helps everybody that he had the money to make that purchase. So not only is someone having money not hurting you, it actually helps a lot of people when they have the money to spend. This actually reminds me of another story, so somewhat related, so stick with me. It's not necessarily about wealth creation, but I can't remember who had this uh, originally. I feel like it was... Uh, Ed, it was it might have been von Mises or it could have been I can't remember who had the story but it talked about the wonder of the pencil and how the the free market system is brilliant for having been able to create the pencil. Consider the complexity of that. Like there's n there's no way there should be a pencil 
like without some kind of government agency having overseen its creation. Like how did we just randomly come up with it? Someone had to cut down the trees. Someone had to process the trees. Someone had to create the paint. Someone had to get the rubber for the for the eraser. Someone had to cre- uh, mine the metal and then manipulate the metal to fit onto this number two pencil. Someone had to get the lead. And, and somehow that worked without government getting involved. And you know how that worked? Because that's how self-interest works and the free market works. There was a demand for writing utensils. And someone invented this idea and then got everyone involved and everyone benefited. So... And you know who, what happened to? Someone made a ton of money off of it. And that didn't hurt anybody. It actually actively helped them. Uh, think final thing on this. It's just the realization that taking his money won't improve anyone's life. No one's going to have a better life because his money is taken. Because it's going to go into an inefficient system. Does anyone think the federal government uses their money efficiently? Uh, if you do, you're, you're objectively wrong on that. The federal government's a terrible place to send that money. And so his money going throughout the economy is going to be more beneficial than anybody. It's going to be more beneficial than the government taking it and distributing it how they see fit. It's not only his money is not even a neutral thing. It is optimal for the economy for him to have it and spend it. It will improve no one's life for it to be taken. I have one more thought on that when we come back, and then I want to talk about the story about whether or not we should be teaching the Bible in public schools. We'll do that when we come back on the Corey Truax Show. Welcome back to this edition of the Corey Truax Show. Thank you for being here with me. Last thought on that Dan Snyder story, that Dan Snyder story with Elizabeth Warren, where they had this uh, this idea of because he has money, it's actively hurting other people. And establishing that taking his money doesn't actually help anyone, that ends up being just playing towards the worst of humankind's instincts, where when Elizabeth Warren does that, she just wants you to be jealous. It's not that you're going to benefit from him having less, because to be clear, you won't. No one will benefit from him having less money. But you might feel a little better. You might feel a little bit better that someone took it to the rich folk. This was one of the big problems with Barack Obama. It was class warfare. The desire to create in us a resentment for another group of people. People do this with class. They do it with race. They do it with religion. But any politician who's out there trying to get you to dislike someone and resent someone whether that be the President of the United States or Elizabeth Warren or anybody else. That's not a politician we should be listening to, and that's a big problem with Elizabeth Warren's message there, is even though you wouldn't be helped by the policy, she wants you to be satisfied and that someone you don't like would be hurt by it. And that's immoral and wrong, and it's wrong, and it's ineffective. Probably the last story for today. The President of the United States, I think with a really cynical, it was a cynical reason he decided to tweet something about some of these states who are introducing Bible literacy courses in public schools. He just knows his base. He knows his, who his base is, uh, and he, he, had a, he had a pretty bad time with the government shutdown and how it ended, and so how do I get back on my feet? Well, I'm going to fire up my base. Who, are your, who is your base? It is primarily a group of people that think the 1950s were the idealized time of America. It was the best time America ever had, and back then we taught, taught the Bible in public schools, and so that is who he tried to fire up. Now, I would ask this question of everybody once we have the emotional reaction calmed down around teaching the Bible in public school. Do you, do you know a public school teacher 
that you want teaching the Bible to your kids, to your grandkids? Can you say with confidence you trust the public school system to teach the Bible faithfully? Is that something you want to entrust to the public school system, or do we want to keep that at the church? I understand the cultural argument that when we taught the Bible, we were a better people. And let's say, let's go ahead and say that's true for a second. I mean, I'll just concede the point. Where we are now, do we want the people that are also teaching them in science that there are 93 genders, that it's, that gender is totally a social construct, that has nothing to do with your X and Y chromosomes and your actual physiology. Do we want that group trying to teach them the nuances of Abraham, then Ishmael and Isaac, and then Jacob? Do we, do we want that? Do you want them teaching the intricacies of Paul's epistles? Is that who we want doing it? Because I don't. I think about my two nephews at 16 and 15, or 15 and 14, one or the other, and they, they do online an online school. It's a Christian school online. And I think about them going to a public school. Do I want the public school teacher teaching them soteriology, how we're saved? Do I want them even teaching them church history through their lens? I sure don't. I want to do that. Let's leave that to the church. Let's leave that to those who don't have a resentment for the faith, but can actually teach it faithfully. A little, I guess, further context here on this. This is where, uh, so I draw a line where I don't want the I don't want the state teaching religion because I think they'll do a bad job. Then there's a couple parts of religion of the Christian faith specifically that's almost not spiritual in nature; it's legal in nature. That I have no problem with government being involved with. Big, uh, big example of this is the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are religious, sure, for for Jews and for Christians. They've also been used as an underpinning for legal thinking for millennia. This codified system of, well, here are the things we don't do, especially, especially the back six. We don't lie to each other. Or, or not lie. We don't bear false witness. Right? So that's a little bit different than lying. We don't covet. We don't commit adultery. We, we don't kill. Like these are laws that have something to do with the moral underpinnings of a society, whether or not it's a Christian one or not. And so there might be some way to teach some Christian principles as a history matter. As a matter of history, here are the ways in which the Bible instructed, the Bible influenced where we are culturally. I mean, if you can tell me that class is going to be that, if you're going to tell me that class is, you know, Madison's notes on the convention where he says one of the arguments made about having states having a lot of power and then localities having a lot of power is because what well, we see in Exodus after Jethro speaks with uh, Moses, Jethro, or maybe speaks with Abraham, well, either one, uh, Jethro speaks with one of those two guys and says, well, you know what we should do is we should set up smaller systems, you know, separate into 10,000 and 1,000 and then 100 and have somebody over 100, the 100 people, and then over the next 1,000. And like, this was the idea of divided government. Like, that was an argument made. In, in the convention in Philadelphia in 1787. Yeah, that's when we uh, wrote the Constitution. Like, if you want to teach it that way, that's fine. But if we're talking about straight up teaching the Bible in public schools, be careful what you wish for. Uh, that, that could get really, really dicey. 
Uh, we ran out of time for some other things. I hope to come back next week. And there was just a lot of stuff this week that I, I couldn't get to because we had some important interviews I wanted to get to. I mean, again, one more time. I am curious to re uh, to, to get into this conversation regarding mental health. I'd love to get your thoughts, your opinion on how Christians should be handling that topic. We are going to move on to sports now because there's apparently a giant game called the Super Bowl coming up. Let's move on to it. our sports correspondent. His name is Heath Powell. Good morning there, sir. Good morning. Or I should say probably hello, because some people just listen to the podcast. So <laughs> hi there, everybody. Hello. Um, so let's quickly review AFC and NFC Championship games. Yep. And then the biggest, I actually think the, the Monday after the Super Bowl should replace one of our, like, Monday holidays, yeah. like Labor Day or something. Because most people call in work anyways. I mean, it's it's a national holiday, right? After the Clemson-Alabama game, I had people that work for me that put in a week before for the day off in case they stayed up to watch it. Yeah. And they did, so they didn't come in. You know, I didn't watch the um, this last one all the way through, but on the first one, I actually did take a vacation day. Right. Because I had never... I mean, Clemson you were at my house. Yes, yeah. we stayed up all night for it. <laughs> yeah. um, we, we watched Hunter ca- catch that ball together. Yeah, it was awesome. Um, the, I hate to say it, but I'm the, I'm the fan that's like, oh, they've already won one? I'm going to bed. But yeah. Not you know, me. I know. <laughs> there are a whole bunch of other folks that want to see all of them. Um, okay, so the first one will go AFC Championship game. I think we both had... Probably maybe thought the Patriots would win. Right. Um, the st- with the style of game, I was surprised you go to overtime. Like anything uh, jump out at you about the AFC title game? Yeah, Brady's three interceptions. Technically, it was two. Yeah. If it wasn't for a four-inch offsides penalty, Incredible. that game was over, and the Chiefs were going to the Super Bowl. Yes, they were. So you know, it's a game of inches, and that that's the game. I'm not I'm not saying the Chiefs should have won it, but yeah, they had it within their grasp, that, and they gave it. They let it slip. Is that D four that lined up offsides? Yeah. How do you li- how do you get over it? You you don't, which is what I appreciate uh, about you know what the coach told him. He said, "Look, we all could have been four inches better. You have to get over it and let's move on." We That's know a good we way got- to say it. Yeah, it was awesome. Yeah, I I wouldn't mind playing for that guy. I, I love Andy Reid. Yeah, and I actually think I'm going to become something of a, cha- a Chiefs fan. Yeah, you know, I'm a Cowboys guy. Right, but there's always some team out there that intrigues me. I like them. Want to see them do well. Well, you know me in the NFL. You know my entire family since before I was born have been Dolphins fans. Right, but once Marino left, I really had no interest in any specific NFL team. I followed the Clemson guys. Uh, oh, yeah. Chiefs have Dorian and Sammy Watkins, Dorian O'Daniel. So, you know, I I enjoy watching those guys. Those guys but I have succeed. no tie to any team, really. So that takes the New England Patriots and the Belichick-Brady era to mm-hmm. their ninth Super Bowl. Yeah, this is Brady's ninth Super Bowl. Incredible. Uh, Belichick as well, but most yeah. people want to talk about, yeah. is, great, is Brady the greatest and blah, blah, blah. This era of 20 years, almost 20 years, just incredible. To go it's to absolutely ever. insane. Um, so where that was the AFC Championship game over to the NFC, where the Rams, another overtime game, yep. surprised me, uh, took down the team that I thought was the, maybe the best in football. I thought the Saints were the best yeah, team Yeah, I thought the Saints were going. I mean, they're at home. You know, they're in the Dome. Um, it, it, it surprised me, actually. It really did. It was past interference at the end, though. Right. Is there any questions? Yeah, yeah I wasn't going to bring that up because it, just because it's obviously past interference. Not only is it past interference, it's targeting which retroactively they find the guy $27,000, but yeah. they don't comment on the missed call. The NFL is so afraid of a black eye on yep. anything. Mm-hmm. All they could have done was say, look, our officiating crew missed this. We apologize, but good luck to the Rams in the Super Bowl. I actually have a post out on Facebook from two and a half years ago, or two years ago in the season. I said, the kneeling of the national anthem is nowhere near a threat to the NFL as it's officiating. Right. Its biggest challenge is your officials are bad. But then the players aren't allowed to comment. The coaches aren't allowed to comment. Yep. Obviously, the NFL doesn't want to comment. 
Right. Yeah. Uh, and so the officials are, are, I guess, that big challenge to the NFL. But the game itself, um, the the Rams holding Breeze in check made me think they have a, I don't know, they have a shot against the Patriots because that defense actually looked pretty good. Yeah, it looked very good. It really did. Um, but here's the difference: the Rams are in the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. They have a bunch of young guys. Jared Goff has never been on this stage before, and you're going against Brady, who's been there nine times. And Belichick. You think Belichick with two weeks off does not have a plan for the Rams? Yeah. Especially on um, – I, th- I think they can slow him down on offense. Yep. This is the first time I've ever seen a Patriots team with two running backs that are this good. Yeah, that's very – I mean, the Patriots running game is a big part of their offense, whereas before it was more pass-reliant. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've had some good running backs in the past. But they, they run the ball in the middle. They hit the edge. They pass out of the backfield. Mm-hmm. With James White is an incredible yeah. – he's a better receiver than he is a running back. The, the, this Patriots team over its 20-year run here, I think it's only on its third offensive coordinator. It's yeah. an incredible consistency. Right. And this this offense is new because the pass – the game used to be 50 passes, most of them within five or seven yards, a yep. little dink dunk. And now he's – I see Brady under center more than I've ever seen him. Yeah, and I think it's a lot of pressure off of him because he's not yeah. he's not getting hit nearly as much yep. because – Obviously, the run game nullifies the blitz, and that opens up your the play your, action, your post, your across yeah. the middle. You know, Edelman's living off of it now. Yes, he always has. With these, um, when I see their play action, it's a thing of beauty where he's throwing into wide open spaces. Yeah, because people are sold out against Sony Michelle. They have to and, J- and James right. White because um, you've got you've got to put a linebacker or a safety watching mm-hmm. James White out of the backfield. Plus, you got Sony Michelle. You just can't watch everybody. You can't and I look. You can argue I want to against Brady, not you personally, but anybody. Yeah. He's gonna find the open dude. Always does. Like he's always gonna find the open guy. That's his his giftedness. His giftedness yeah. is a pre-snap institutional knowledge of we lined up this way. They're going to respond this way. This is gonna be. The I spot think that's over. what makes Brady quote unquote great. Oh yeah, because he gets up there to the line. He sees what the defense and he he'll check it down four times till he gets what he wants, yes, and sir. then all of a sudden there's there's a touchdown. Yeah, like not a lot of guys do that. The um. I think it comes partly with just experience. Right. He's been doing it for so long. You're not showing him anything he hasn't seen before. You're not. And, you know, I don't think he gets a lot of credit for being such a video nerd. Yes. uh, A game film nerd. Like, he lives and breathes watching game film. I've heard him talk some in some some of the NFL Network interviews. Like, he knows on third and four on this part of the field, this is what this defensive coordinator likes to do. Yeah, like, we're inside the 40, so they're going to do this, and they they trend this way. And like, what? do you know that? (laughs) Like, you've studied that hardcore. Yeah. That this is a thing, this is their tendency. And so I'll know on third and four in this part of the field, I'm going to pass this way. Yeah. Okay, you freak. Yeah, I heard a story about him being that way, and one of the guys, you know, got passed over for the Pro Bowl, one of the linebackers, yeah. I think. And he was upset, and he was crying in there, and Brady went in there and let him have it. And like, why are you crying? We don't play this game to go to Pro Bowls. We play to win rings. Yeah. And then he just turned around and walked off. <laughs> and good for him. Yeah, um, I mean – He's a he's been a great leader for the organization, and the more you hear about him, which sounds weird since he's been there forever and been yeah. missing Super Bowls, but the guys that play there tend to really love Tom Brady. They want to play yes. for Tom Brady. They want to win for Tom Brady. There is a um. There's definitely I hate to call it a cult of personality because that right. sounds negative. Right. But there's definitely uh. I th- I thought this was the same thing for Watson at Clemson. Yeah. I found this to be the case for for Manning for Favre. And you know this the cult of personality is true, but it may be an outlier as far as quarterbacks go. Yeah. I think you have to have that. Yeah. For people to buy into the quarterback. Look what happened with Trevor Lawrence at Clemson. That's right. He was, you know, he was calm. He knew his place. He was a freshman, didn't run his mouth. And people bought into that when they saw yeah. how good he was. And I think 
in football, you need a cold person like with the quarterback. I, I agree, especially you get your offensive lineman. They can't resent him. Your right. left tackle is having to go up against the other team's best yeah. athlete every snap. And it helps if there's that with a coach as well. Yep. But I think more so with a quarterback. To the game itself, if the Rams find a way to win, will this be the storyline? The storyline, I think, will be if the Rams win. Sean McVay is the new Belichick, king of football for 30 years. It may be. I mean, the dude is 33 years he's old. He's younger than we are. I know. And he's about to coach in the Super Bowl against the Jedi Master. Yeah. Or the Sith Lord, however you prefer it. Yeah, it's absolutely insane. We talked about this before with yeah. the video footage of McVay playing wide receiver and then Edelman playing wide receiver so against each other. And it's just absolutely nuts how young this guy is. The, but but NFL head coaching is trending toward the younger, innovative is. type guys. It just yeah. is. The only way, because talent for talent, I actually think the Patriots are a smidge better. Not a ton better. Right. They're a smidge better. The only way the Rams win the game is if McVay knows something the rest of us don't know, and he's about to go do something really Listen, creative. if Cooper Cup was healthy, I'm picking the Rams. Picking the Rams. But he's not. No. So I'm not. Yeah, I can't. <laughs> Plus, I can't. It's, it's, it's extremely hard to pick against the Patriots in a Super Bowl. There's something about... I mean, they live for this they, game. They sure do. That's None, all they do. They're used to it. They'll lose a few in the, in the in during the season, but when it comes playoff time, they, they let it rip. This is routine for them. The, the only other part of, I thought uh, could trouble them is where, where Brady has struggled. Um, an AFC Championship game a couple years ago, it was because of Von Miller, Demarcus Ware. Right. When it was against the Giants in Super Bowl, it was that pass rush was great. Mm-hmm. Aaron Donald's a problem. Right. And if you can get Aaron Donald hot, you can mess with Brady, but. I don't know. You just double team him every play and let Brady do the rest. Also, think this is where the running game comes in. Yeah, just neutralize it because they're going to have to stop the run. Then all of a sudden, Brady's going over the middle, and there's Edelman for a touchdown. Yeah, uh, Aaron Donald can only yeah, do so much. And Dominic Sue and Donald are great. Don't, great. I'm not saying that. With our 30 seconds left, I'm taking the Patriots 24-17. 24-17 is my call. Yeah, I'm going Patriots 35-17-21, something like that. So uh, their first ever. Uh, Super Bowl that's not a drama queen. Right. They are always coming from behind by 40 at halftime or <laughs> winning by three or whatever. I think this right. is different. Last play. Well, thanks for coming in and doing sports. I appreciate it. We'll be back with another new edition of the Corey Truax Show next week. Remember to share it anywhere you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat. Get it on demand at all the podcasting apps. We'll be back again next week. Until next time, everybody. Peace and love.